This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Selena Larson, Senior Threat Intelligence Analyst at Proofpoint. Proofpoint, who provide the most effective cybersecurity and compliance solutions to protect people on every channel, including email, the web, cloud, and social media. Selena, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. So, Selena, before we get started, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how did you get to where you're at today? Yeah, so I, like you said, I'm a Senior Threat Intelligence Analyst at Proofpoint. I've been here for about two years. Prior to that, I was working at uh, Dragos, which is an industrial cybersecurity company, largely focusing on OT and ICS threats. But before that, how I actually came to be a part of the security industry was I used to be a privacy and cybersecurity journalist. I did a lot of coverage and research into cybersecurity threats, how they were impacting people, our society and the economy, and uh, got to know very, very well the cybersecurity industry and realized that I wanted to kind of pivot from journalism into threat research and threat intelligence. Wow, that's very interesting. How would you say your journalism skills map into cyber skills? That's a really great question, and I think very effectively. So especially when it comes to threat intelligence and threat research, a lot of the skills, for example, being able to ask questions of data, develop hypotheses, develop relationships, talk to people, certainly writing, being a good writer, a good effective communicator, identifying patterns and trends in data. A lot of that I was doing as a journalist. And I think that that is very applicable to cyber threat intelligence and threat hunting and threat research. It's actually kind of funny when I think about some of the sort of one-to-one skills mapping, because I think a lot of times you might not think of them as being necessarily related to industries or jobs, but there is actually a lot of overlap there. And it has been a really terrific transition coming into the industry and using those skills and developing new ones to tell the story of threats. Yeah, interesting. So were you doing like magazine, newspaper, or were you doing like books, novels? Like what was your, I guess, focus as far as volume? Yeah, so I was a news reporter most recently at CNN before I pivoted into threat intelligence. And actually, one thing I will say there is a difference because as a journalist, you're working on deadline, trying to get scoops. It's really sort of high pressured, very, very timely. You want to write fast. I was writing a lot of news. You want to kind of get reports out there. And I do have to say that at Proof There is less of a sort of working under the gun. You have more time to research. You have more time to take a look at your data. It's more, I would say, along the lines of like feature writing and journalism as opposed to news writing and journalism. You have the time to, you know, develop those sources and figure out what those threat actors are doing. You're not trying to necessarily get the next scoop. (laughs) Sure. That's it's interesting because I was actually going to ask that very question. I was going to make that exact comparison. And I would think it would actually be useful to function under a deadline in particular so that you can present data more quickly because intelligence really does come down to accuracy. But I would argue more important than accuracy is timeliness. It's easy. It's not necessarily intelligence after an event happened, right? It's ideally you're getting it in front of, or as they call it, left of bang, right? 
And I would think that like learning that delivery under duress, or I don't know what you'd want to call that, you know, uh, kind of deadline method, I would think it would be very useful as an analyst. Uh, it's like uh, you've already got that pressure experience as opposed to not like learning it in the other way could be tricky. And I, I think a lot of technologists tend to want to write a novel when mm -hmm. really just a couple sentences is all that's needed. That's a really good point. And I will say that when you talk about working under duress, there is like certainly SOC analysts, incident responders are very much in that mindset, right? Where they're like responding to things with the sense of urgency, the sense of timeliness. But you make a great point. Sometimes intelligence doesn't necessarily have to be pages and pages long. Sometimes actionable, timely, relevant intelligence can be, like you were saying, just as much as a couple of paragraphs and being able to identify, first of all, what happened, second of all, why it matters. And third of all, communicating to the right audience what to do about it, I think is very, very important, no matter the length of whatever your intel is. And certainly if it is something very urgent, oftentimes a short alert can be just as effective and potentially even more useful than in-depth pages of deeply, deeply reported work, which is certainly obviously very interesting and relevant in its own way. Yeah, excellent. So tell me, what's a day in the life of an analyst, you know, uh, for you look like? Yeah, so I'm very, very lucky to work on an amazing team at Proofpoint under the threat research team. I focus largely on e-crime, so cybercrime. That includes things like initial access brokers, small targeted cybercrime. Those are kind of my main focus. But certainly I do oftentimes work with um, business email compromise, more sort of BEC focused types of threats. But we at Proofpoint look at, you know, we have billions of messages, like bad stuff that, that we're looking at daily. And basically, I try and find those interesting threats, tracking the threat actors that I know um, I have to keep the pulse on, basically threat hunting in our data to look for um, the malware that they're using, potentially credential phishing attacks, taking a look at mapping actor infrastructure, the types of TTPs and threat behaviors that they're using. And then a lot of my work involves reporting that out. So writing intelligence reports, creating campaigns for our customers, basically clustering a lot of this activity into a time-bound data set and saying, this is what this actor is doing. Here are its TTPs. And, you know, basically we're blocking this in, in mail flow. But from a researcher perspective, getting that information out there, certainly through our blogs or presentations to the larger community about this is some of the activity that we are seeing. Here are some TTPs. We also work very closely with the Emerging Threats team. That's also under threat research. So we're writing network signatures for a lot of the activity that we're seeing and, and detecting and getting that out to customers and communities as well. Nice. So any particular part of it more exciting than others? Yeah. So I particularly like targeted cybercrime. I think it's a little, it gets a little bit less attention, I think, than some of the other threat actors, right? For example, I know initial access brokers are really, really important. Certainly a lot of those infections can lead to ransomware, have those, you know, very, very important large scale events. But I think that um, targeted cybercrime, just because it has less attention paid to it, some of the actors, for example, that I track operate out of or target regions such as South America, Latin America, Southeast Asia, one of my favorite actors regularly targets the Philippines, for example. They're all financially motivated, but they all kind of approach things a little bit differently. Sometimes they're focused on certain industries or verticals. We have one actor that I track pretty regularly, largely focuses on aviation and aerospace, manufacturing, some of the aviation kind of supply chain. So looking at those sort of more targeted, interesting, unique threat actors that are not kind of just mass spamming, but are, are a little bit more targeted and thoughtful in the verticals or geographies that they're targeting, I think is a lot of fun. 
Sure. No, it is always fun to see kind of the mind of a criminal in action, right? And uh, there is definitely, I've, I've done a bunch of it as well, and it's almost like a movie that you get to watch or like as it unfolds, it's it's very good stuff. So question for you though. So as a practitioner, right, you're out doing your thing every day. You have exposure to both your own teams, but you know, you've had the experience of working other places in, as well. And obviously not asking you to beat anybody up, but what would you say that most practitioners get wrong? And it could be method or even tools or, you know, anything in particular. But one of the things we always try to get our listeners I hate to say learning from the mistakes of others, but essentially, you know, gives them ideas of what not to do. You know, that's a really good point. I don't know if I would necessarily call it wrong, but I think a lot of times security practitioners forget that there's a human being on the end of every attack. I think that oftentimes there's a mentality of blaming the victim. Oh, why did they click that? Oh, they should know better. Oh, you know, this shouldn't have happened because of this person, as opposed to this was an actor that was using very effective methods to be able to compromise a company or a person, and that actually caused them harm or distress. I think a lot of times we forget to have that empathy for the user, and we think a lot of just ones and zeros. It's just like an interesting or unique malware, or it's just this threat actor, and this is what they're doing. But I've actually talked to victims of cybercrime, and even including people in my own family, for example, it's an emotional thing. They feel like they're a victim of a crime. And even if it's just on the computer or on their phone, there is that sort of emotional distress that's occurred. And, and you know, sometimes people think, oh, I should have known better. And then there's that feeling of guilt that can be compounded when there's this idea of blaming the victim. And so I think it's really important for us as practitioners um, that include certain intelligence analysts, that includes, you know, people who are writing these reports about that activity to remember that there's always someone on the other end that's experiencing something that really, really sucks and not to victim blame, but think about how we as a community and as security practitioners ourselves can make the space better so that there are fewer victims of cybercrime. I agree. And, you know, I would say that manifests itself even outside of crime or cybersecurity, you know, any of that. I can recall times where like backup admins were like, oh, your data didn't get backed up because you didn't put it in the right place. And I told you in, in like this mentality of like, you get what you deserve, right? And right. in reality, most people didn't ask to do anything digital to begin with. Most mm -hmm. people, you know, their occupation went to the digital age and they had to go along. But there are like very few people are the catalyst who purposely drove an analog business into a digital age. Like very few mm -hmm. people are that. So like to say, well, they get what they deserved. It's like, well, no, they didn't ask for any of this. So like in the other argument, I would always tell people is like, well, you realize without them, we don't need you. Right. <laughs> you know, like these users are why you are here. And it's for the purpose of execution of the business. And a yeah. lot of people miss that. But I would agree with you. Empathy seems to be a hard talent for practitioners to muster. <laughs> Um, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if there's something <laughs> psychological there or if it's just a coincidence. Uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, you bring up a really great point. We live in a bubble like security people who live and breathe security, who know the threats, who know the risks, who are trying, you know, to combat a lot of the stuff. We live in a bubble. The majority of people in the world exist outside this bubble. And security isn't something that comes natural to them. It's not something that they're doing in their day to day lives. It's not something oftentimes that they're taught. It's getting a lot better, I think, certainly in K-12 up through the university level of, you know, digital natives becoming more aware about cybersecurity. But yeah, to your point, I mean, their job is not 
security. So they're not thinking that top of mind. And yeah, I mean, and I don't know if it's just because we're a bunch of curmudgeons that have to deal with it a is. lot of it is. <laughs> that's so it, like, actually. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A bunch of curmudgeonly pessimists or something that work in cybersecurity. Right. But yeah. <laughs> no, it's I think that's fairly accurate. So that's, <laughs> that's funny. So aside from empathy, what skills do you think are most critical for security practitioner to possess that will kind of help them get through, you know, the next, let's say, decade? Yeah. So that's a great question. We were talking a little bit about from the threat intelligence perspective, but I think this applies to security practitioners as a whole is critical thinking, being able to think very critically, to think about different ways of solving problems and coming at things from different perspectives and being open to hearing different perspectives, thinking about different ways to solve problems and effectively communicating problems. I think the communication piece is another really important point. You know, we were just talking that most people are not these sort of like security natives. And I think for a really long time, there was a failure to effectively communicate why security was important, why it mattered, and what people could do about it in a way that was accessible to a broad audience. I think it's getting a lot better. I think people are realizing that in order for people to stay secure, they have to communicate things differently. Certainly, security training is a great example. There are a variety of security training. There is, you know, real life, Role playing, you have cartoons. I think I saw one on the internet that was a musical of like just trying to approach things differently and people learn in different ways. So that's one. I think also being amiable and adaptable. There's a lot of talk about how certainly new tools and, and software and artificial intelligence, for example, might play a role in certainly in cybersecurity, but certainly I think in all jobs everywhere. It's like, oh no, what is AI going to do? But being able to kind of adapt to change and incorporate changes into your practice, I think, is very critical as well. So that's what I think I would say. Nothing in terms of like, because technical skills can be learned, like new tools and development can be learned, I think. But there are some skills like we're talking about empathy, critical thinking, kind of puzzle solving, communications, a lot of these things that I think are top of mind to a lot of security practitioners that are extremely helpful. Sure. You know, I think easily half of the guests that we've had on list critical thinking as that that's always in their top three list of talents that you have to have. I wholly agree. I think we live in a way today that I would argue is like a headwind to critical thinking because you get your mm-hmm. answers instantly. And at least up until now, as we're approaching the AI age, right, we're starting to see the potential for misinformation to be presented as the answer. Because these large language models, they don't actually know anything. They just have aggressive indexing capability and they themselves can't be critically thinking because, well, they're not thinking. So like their accuracy has been shown to be, you know, oftentimes inaccurate to the point where it's just making stuff up. And you have to still have critical thinking, though, to even spot those. And unfortunately, I think as we have, you know, made our lives easier through digital automations and You know, I mean, just look at the impact Google has had in the world. You get an answer almost instantly to what your question was. And we've created and typically nobody really double checks to see because like the days of SEO manipulation have largely gone away. Right. So now those top hits you get, you just assume, well, these must be accurate. That's why how many people point there. But unfortunately, I think if you get into that habit, eventually you kind of put mittens on your critical thinking. Right. You don't get to apply it as you really should be applying critical thinking, which is fully contextual. Instead, we just get out of the habit of doing it. So I'm glad to hear you say that. It is a ton of our guests, though, list that. So that's yeah. uh, that's well, definitely a running trend. 
And that also goes hand in hand with being able to recognize your own bias, right? So like if you're expecting a certain answer and then you see the certain answer without, you know, double checking it or looking at other pieces of information. And I think that that's a trap that intelligence analysts can fall into is their own inherent bias when they're tracking a threat actor or seeing some potential behavior and their bias towards one conclusion and kind of build the evidence around to support that conclusion as opposed to you know, fully running it down and coming up with alternative hypotheses that could be supported as well. So I think that that very much goes into it is like, what are we expecting to see? Then we, you know, it follows that we're going to write that or we're going to make that conclusion. But back, you know, that critical thinking, that identification of bias is is super important. And I do want to give a shout out, a quick shout out actually to um, Chris Sanders, uh, Applied Network Defense, because he has an amazing threat intelligence course where he talks a lot about the psychology of threat intelligence and sure. talks about critical thinking, talks about identifying bias. And what I think is my favorite theme is thinking about thinking. We never really take the time to think about why our brains come to certain decisions that they do. And I think if we're a little bit more mindful about that, it can produce some really amazing results. So it's great to hear other people agree. <laughs> yeah, no, it's a huge number of them. And and I would say the thing that I pick out of it, which is maybe slightly different, but the thing that I find most interesting is it is referred to explicitly as critical thinking, as one of the top needed skills. And if I could draw a comparison to, let's say, carpentry, when you ask carpenters, you know, what's the skills you need, you almost never hear, well, a working thumb. But I would argue that critical thinking to a security practitioner or an intelligence analyst is effectively a working thumb, so be that you can actually wield the tools, right? And what that tells me is because, like I said, since we don't see this typically expressed in other ways, such an obvious talent for that trade, it makes me wonder why so many practitioners are having to highlight it. Is it because there is a paucity of it that in actuality, critical thinking is something that you people such as yourselves are recognizing is missing? So you are actually having to say it, or is it so incredibly powerful that it's like as a reminder? But I think it's very interesting that it even needs to be said, because like I said, if you go to a carpentry convention, they skip right over all those implicit things that you need to have. But critical thinking, I would argue, is one of those things. Yeah, that's a really good question, actually. I'm not sure. I think part of it is that a lot of times people focus on the technical abilities. So what tools do I have? What tools am I using? Can I program in Python or C Sharp or, you know, Rust? <laughs> like, and these very tangible um, or like digiti- digitally tangible skills that you see that sort of build the outcome. Like, can I do malware reversing? You know, like what tools am I using? The resources available to me and less about the components and the information and the processes that actually go into having an effective security system that that includes, for example, the communication and threat intelligence. But I think a lot of times we just get caught up in these sort of like very technical, tangible skills that sometimes it is just a really great reminder that is like, okay, you can have all of those tools, but if you aren't thinking about the information, if you're not thinking about the threat actors, if you're not thinking about the scope of the behaviors in a critical way and looking at, you know, problem solving, looking at, you know, in response to an incident, how do I approach this? What are some different options available to me? And having a very open mind, 
it can lead to sort of very narrow, narrow focus in a lot of ways. And I think it, it is just a good reminder. I think, you know, it is talked about, but I think it's talked about because it's one of those sort of intangible skills that mm-hmm. you can't really see or put your hands on. But it goes leaps and bounds, like moves you so far ahead of the game, I think. Fully agreed. Critical thinking is, uh, is definitely has a fan here. So <laughs> let me ask you a bigger picture. So what do you believe is going to be the biggest cybersecurity challenges that we face, say, in the next, say, 10 years, five, 10 years? So I think we are in the midst of one of the biggest cybersecurity challenges, which is, I think, was has been identified or, or shown to us. I say kind of us in terms of kind of thinking of the U.S. or Europe, that, that type of mindset is uh, ransomware has exposed a lot of issues and systemic problems with cybersecurity. And I think that there are tiers of organizations that are very, very well prepared and can combat a lot of these threats. But there are organizations and some of them that are the most critical to our existence, to our happiness, to our health, to education, that are just very, very poorly resourced. They don't have the resources available. They don't have the people available. And they just don't have the finances available to fully secure their organizations against some of these important threats like ransomware. Mm -hmm. So I think that we are kind of in a moment where this realization is happening that, okay, there have to be big shifts from external sources to elevate the security of these, you know, underfunded, underbudgeted organizations. So I think with, for example, Biden's national cybersecurity strategy, there was a lot of discussion on how can we make sure that things are you know, secure by design so that all users are operating on kind of the same level of basic security when they are using some type of service? How can we ensure that you know, K-12 organizations or hospitals are getting the investment so they can improve their own cybersecurity to combat a lot of this, this ransomware or business email compromise, which is another huge, huge, huge moneymaker for cybercrime? And so I think that Hopefully, I'm hopeful. This is a hopeful shift. <laughs> okay. Uh, is that within the next five to 10 years, we do start addressing some of those systemic problems that are leading to these really devastating and honestly very, very sad in many ways, sort of ransomware attacks and, and other similar threats. Yeah, they are out of control. That's for sure. And to a lot of people that are impacted by them, they wouldn't know how to identify proper help to begin with. So unfortunately, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that are just exploiting those people. I've heard of companies that were charging way more than the ransom and then just paying the ransom to get oh, wow. to get data unlocked. And then they find out the hard way that the people also intend to extort them. So sure, they got their ransom back, but the person who ransomed you is going to basically ransom you again, you know, but people are at the mercy of the quote unquote help that has come to them and they have to just hope that this person they're dealing with or this company they're dealing with, you know, is above board and is going to do the right thing. It's definitely pretty scary stuff. And in my opinion, ransomware is, and in particular, when you're seeing now, just because you've been ransomware, it doesn't even mean that that's what happened to you. Like we've seen instances, you know, where nation state actors on their way out the door, essentially set off ransomware purposely to false flag or to create a obvious outcome bias to steer you know, people off of them. And we've seen that stuff. It is also interesting to me that there are, what I would argue, there's some reasonable technical methods that we could be employing 
you know, file system interfaces and things like that, that could, if a machine has an excessive amount of uptime and suddenly has a massive spike in read writes, where it's, you know, rewriting everyone. I mean, there are behaviors to the process of the ransom process that you would think by now someone would have come out with, again, a file system interface or some type of device interface that can detect what is like, hey, we have a 60-day uptime, so it's not like the system is just being built, you know, like I'm being re-imaged or something. But you would think that they would do better at detecting stuff, but that hasn't seemed to have taken off. That's one of the things that has not baffled me, but I have thought is interesting because it seems like there are some technical approaches that we could take to limit ransomware, but definitely interesting stuff. So zooming out, say, you know, five years from now, what do you think cyber risk management or mitigation, what do you think is going to be changing there in that uh, horizon? Well, so I think that within the next few years, there's going to be a lot more awareness of the threat landscape. There's going to be a lot more, a greater understanding, both from kind of an executive CISO level, but also even down to folks who are working in IT, who are working in the stock, but also across the company. We kind of started off this conversation being like, well, people, most people are just like not living and breathing cybersecurity. But I think we've reached a point where the awareness is growing and it's not just a bubble. So I think that there's going to be a lot more awareness of the general threat landscape and improved behaviors by organizations to be a lot more mindful about this. We've actually seen some changes to the threat landscape that was directly applicable to decisions that were made by organizations and the sort of general adoption of better security. So for example, with the increase in multi-factor authentication, both from using SMS, but also MFA tokens, has pushed a lot of credential phishing threat actors to use multi-factor authentication stealing toolkits, right? So it's not just usernames and passwords are not just enough. And it adds this additional layer of complexity that the threat actor is going to have to bypass and try and figure out a way, okay, I have to steal their username and their password and their token and their cookies. So I think in the sort of long term, we'll see more of the behavior changes on the end user and organization side impact the threat landscape and have to have threat actors adopt and develop new techniques, new resources to sort of respond to that. And that's great because that adds pain. That adds pain to the bad guys, right? If it's mm-hmm. if they have to do, you know, more resource development, they're spending a lot more cycles trying to be like, how am I going to do this? And I think as the awareness grows, as people start understanding and measuring cyber risk, as there's a lot more efforts to identify and improve vulnerability management, to identify and improve sort of network security, whether that's exposed resources or whether that's internal in terms of identity management and authorization. And then just from the end user perspective, improving and increasing training, all of that I think will improve and thus we'll see a very interesting shift in the threat landscape responding to a lot of that. Well, let's hope so. You know, I kind of anticipate something bad is going to happen. And that will be like the driver. But you're actually proposing this, if I'm understanding, you're proposing it more like uh, people will get it and make the world better as a result. So I, I, hope, I hope so. I hope that's the case. But I do anticipate a giant, horrible event that's going to be another wake up call. Like That'll um, be the driver. Yeah. Well, but this is a great point. Like the Colonial Pipeline ransomware incident. Mm-hmm. That was and JBS Foods was another ransomware incident it happened very close to each other. That was a huge driver of people mm-hmm. being like, wait a minute. We have to take this a lot more seriously. And you okay. do see a lot of very positive outcomes around things like the like ransomware task forces, around 
budgets and focus on certainly the ransomware threat actors. But by default, you're also kind of defending against a lot of these cred stealers or, you know, business email compromise actors, a lot of these other actors that might not be on top of mind, but are a byproduct of defending against ransomware. You also have these impacts to other threats. Sure. So to wrap things up, what are three pieces of actionable advice that you have for our listeners, practitioners and thought leaders alike? That's a good question. So I feel like I say this on like every podcast or every, every presentation that I'm kind of in is going back to thinking about empathy. One, never forget that there's an end user, that there is a victim of the cyber attack and the, the stuff that you're doing directly impacts real human beings. I think, you know, having a more empathetic mindset and thinking about the the users and how we're effectively communicating the result of an incident can have a vast improvement on the overall morale of the individual. But also, I think in terms of the learnings and key takeaways, their behavior will change for the better if we're coming at it from a more like empathetic and thoughtful mindset. So that's one. Mm -hmm. Number two, I would say while there is a lot of discussion and hype around things like language models and artificial intelligence, I think it's really mindful for us to remember that, like you were saying, it's not perfect. <laughs> There's a lot of of bad stuff that can happen. And sort of thinking about or relying on artificial intelligence as your main security program is not necessarily the answer. It's a great tool to be integrated into a lot of things, but be very, very mindful and wary about how things like chat GPT can be used for both good and bad. I think that there's a lot of really interesting research that can be done to see how that will be applicable to cybersecurity as a whole. And then finally, I would say, this is going to sound so cheesy. I'm so sorry it's going to sound so cheesy. But <laughs> I think it's really important to remember that the stuff that we're doing has direct impacts on cybersecurity overall. It can be really, really difficult to live in a world where we're constantly dealing with incidents especially you know, if you're an incident responder, if you're a cybersecurity practitioner, if you're threat hunting these threat actors over and over again. But as we've seen, the work that we're doing directly impacts the threat actors and the decisions that they're making, and we are making their lives harder. So I think it's important that as much as we are curmudgeons to really remember that the work that we're doing is hugely beneficial and does have an impact on the landscape overall. And ultimately, we are making our organizations, our communities you know, the world that we live in a much better place. So it's it's always good to remember that when you're having a bad day. Sure. So it's care, think, and appreciate. Yes. And Perfect. <laughs> Perfect. So that's all of the time we have today. Thanks so much for joining us. It was a very good uh, conversation with you. If folks want to follow either your research, your publications, just see what you're doing. Do you have social media and things like that? Yeah. So I am on LinkedIn. I'm on Mastodon and I'm on Twitter, all at Selena Larson. And pretty much all the work that me and my team does goes on the Threat Insight blog on Proofpoint. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.